Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts 1, 8. After Jesus' death, he ascended into heaven, and the last words that he spoke to his disciples, 120 of them, as they stood there watching him ascend into the clouds, were these. Acts 1, 8. Let's read it together. You ready? But you will receive power. All right. Let's read it together this time. Everybody. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. These last words that Jesus gave before he ascended into heaven uh, gave us a promise, a command, and the scope of how we apply this. The promise is you're going to receive power. The Greek word dynamis, we've been talking about that. That's the same power that empowered Jesus when he walked on the earth. It's the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. And it's an amazing thought, that same power, an amazing truth, that same power lives within every believer, giving us the strength we need to do whatever God has called us to do. I don't know what God is calling you to do today. For some of you, it may be a tough heavy assignment. But I do know this, whatever He's calling us to do, He gives us the strength to do it. There's no believer who can say, Lord, that's too heavy for me. That's too tough for me. I'd like to do it, but I can't. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit living within you, and God will give you all the strength, all the capability, the word means, everything you need, all the ability to do what He's calling you to do. So the promise is you're going to receive power through the Holy Spirit, and the command is you're going to be my witnesses. We've said that word is the Greek word martyr. It came to mean someone who witnessed for Christ all the way to their death. And we'll see that today in the first martyr, Stephen. But long before you die for Christ, what do you do? You live for Him. And so being a martyr, being a witness is what we should do every day of our life. We also saw the scope of this command and promise. You're to start in Jerusalem. You have to do things at home. If you don't take care of home, you have nothing to share. I know there are a lot of churches, and they do all international stuff, and that's great. And they our other churches do all national stuff, and that's great. Other churches, they're just in the community, and that's great. And some churches say, we're just going to focus right here at home. The problem with that is it is not in obedience to Acts 1.8. Because in Acts 1.8, you can't choose what you're going to focus on. You've got to be witnesses at home. You've got to take care of things at home. You've got to take care of things in your Judea. That's your community. That's why it's so cool to have Vacation Bible School, reaching out in Deberry to the community. You've got to take care of your community. That's part of the command. We've got to take care of our nation. We have to be those who impact our nation. That's our Samaria, right? And then, this is an easy one, to the end of the earth is our world. Back in that day when they first heard this, the Jewish mind said Jerusalem is the very center of the world. Spain to the west, that's about as far as it gets. Ethiopia down south, that's about as far as it gets. And then over in Asia, Arabia, that's about as far as it gets. That was their mind. Today it's a lot bigger, isn't it? And we're going to see how the gospel spread throughout the world and how it impacts us today. 
So when Jesus ascended to heaven, he had these 120 confused, fearful people watching him go up into the clouds until an angel said, why do you keep staring into the clouds? The same Jesus who went away, he's going to come back in the very same way. Time for you to go. Remember, he told you to go wait on him. And about 10 days later, he sent his Holy Spirit. When Peter preached that first sermon, 3,000 people came to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. 3,000 people. And the church was off and running. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. There were thousands of priests, by the way. A lot of them in the lower orders of the priests and they came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. There was such a spiritual explosion in Jerusalem. Some commentators say from the early on, there were about 5,000 to 600 Christians early on in Jerusalem. And F.F. Bruce, if you've never read F.F. Bruce, you need to do that. He's written some tremendous commentaries, some tremendous books. This uh, quote comes from The Spreading Flame. Listen to what he says about the early church. Those who followed Jesus found new life and new hope. They were no longer leaderless. Because if there was one thing more than anything else that was very real to them, it was the presence and power of Jesus. Though no longer with them in visible form, his presence was realized and enjoyed when they met, and more stupendous still, the mighty works which Jesus had performed as signs of the new age when he was on earth continued to be performed by the disciples in his name, or, Bruce says, to put it more accurately, were performed by Jesus from heaven through his disciples. Isn't that amazing? He still does that today, doesn't he? He is still working. Jesus is still working from heaven. And we get to be the ones who carry out his work. We are his hands and his feet. We are his mouthpiece here on this earth. What a privilege that is. And what a responsibility. So the question for all of us is, isn't it? Are we doing that? Are we the mouthpiece of Jesus at your work? At your home? In your neighborhood? In your community? Are we carrying out the work that Jesus assigned to us? Now let me make that a little more personal. Are you carrying out the work that Jesus assigned to you? Are you doing the thing that God put you on this earth to do? Man, that's the question every man and woman and boy and girl has to answer, isn't it? Why did God put me on this earth? And am I doing the work that he has called me to do? And you got to, that one ought to keep you up at night if you don't know the answer to that. When Christianity began, uh, in that time in history, in Judaism... There were several sects that could meet at the temple. Um, as long as you, uh, as long as you, as you held to the Jewish way of life, and as long as you held to one God, monotheism, it, it was a it was a time when they allowed a lot of people to meet in the, in the temple. So they allowed these Christians to come and meet in the temple, although they didn't call them Christians. Christians were not first called Christians. Uh, at first, they were called Nazarenes because they followed this man named Jesus of Nazareth. Or they were called the saints or the holy people. That was a name they gave themselves because they, they considered themselves the true remnant of Israel, the ones set apart from Israel. They were called the poor uh, from the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, and 
economically, they were poor. Uh, Jerusalem went through a difficult time in that period of history. There was an earthquake there. There was a famine there. In fact, later, Paul, in his missionary journeys, collects money and sends back to the church in Jerusalem because they're going through such difficult times. They're called sometimes disciples of Jesus. And the movement was not called Christianity at all. It was called, anyone know? The Way. And the way was growing like crazy. Like I said, 5,600, 6,000 people in the movement. And the high priests were getting really concerned because they didn't mind them in the temple courts. But 5,000 of these people. And the Sadducees, during this time, there were different uh, parts of Judaism. There were the Essenes. There were the, there were the Pharisees, very strict, kept the law. There were the Sadducees. And the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. That's why they were Sad, you see. Yeah, okay. Just trying to help you. I'm just trying to help. Well, there's a new faith that was based on what? Jesus rose from the dead. And so they went after Christianity. They didn't like it at all. So they put the apostles in prison. And if you look at chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 4, the Sadducees stirred up uh, some, some propaganda against the first believers They put the apostles in prison, uh, verse 19, but that night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. That was another name for Christianity at that time, this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. Again, they didn't appreciate it at all. And so they went after them again. There was one well-known leader at that time. His name was Gamaliel. People would go all over the world, to, uh, Jews would go all over the world to sit under the teaching of Gamaliel. And here's what Gamaliel said. Listen to these words. Look over at chapter 5, verse uh, 34. But a Pharisee in the council, part of the Sanhedrin, part of the, part of the governing uh, body, uh, named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in high honor among the people. He stood up and he gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. He said, take the apostles, get them out of here. We got some family business to take care of. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Studius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. Um, And then after him, Judas the Galilean, if you read Jewish history, there was this guy named Judas the Galilean, and he led this huge tax revolt uh, in uh, 86. Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, and he drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in, in, in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan is or under or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. Boy, that's true, isn't it? If something's of man, it, it ain't gonna, it's not going to work. But if it's of God, <laughs> you're not going to be able to overthrow them, and you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Well, at least they took his advice for a while. But with the popularity of the way continuing to grow, they said, we can't handle this anymore. And so they took a leader. They charged him of blasphemy. His name was Stephen. His sermon is recorded in Acts chapter 7. And they stoned Stephen to death. He's the first Christian martyr. And when you stone someone, you want to make sure you can really rear back and throw, right? You can't do that with your robes on. So they took out their outer robes. 
They put him in a pile. And there was a man, an up-and-coming student of Gamaliel, who guarded the robes, giving his approval to the execution. This man had a passion to put an end to the way. Look at verse uh, 1, the middle of verse 1, chapter 8. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entered house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He, 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 he didn't want to just stop the way. He wanted, he wanted to persecute those who followed it, and not just in Jerusalem. Flip over to chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, that's interesting. We don't know why he would have chosen Damascus. Maybe he knew that there was a church started in Damascus or it had... Christianity had at least grown uh, that far, and he said, I'm going to go to Damascus, I'm going to stop it there, then I'm going to work my way down. Don't know why he went there, but this we do know. On that road to Damascus, from Jerusalem to Damascus, 136 miles, as the crow flies, says Siri, 136 miles, he was stopped by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to him, a bright light blinded him, and Christ spoke to him. Only Saul could see Jesus. The men with him heard a voice but didn't see anything. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was uh, blinded, looked up. He said, Lord, Lord, who are you? He said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And he told Saul, Saul couldn't see at all now. He's blinded. He told Saul to go to a certain house. The men with him took him to this house. Through the Holy Spirit, God told a man, Ananias, who was in the town, right, the person who who Paul was going to persecute, go to that house and speak to Saul. Here are the words I want you uh, to tell Saul. Look at chapter 9, verse 17. And Ananias departed, and he entered the house. By the way, if you'd been Ananias... And you knew Saul had come to persecute the Christians. And God said, I want you to go talk to Saul. You might say, hey, I don't know if I want to go or not, right? But Ananias obediently went and laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit and immediately... Something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was what? Baptized. Because in Acts, if you're a believer, what do you do? You get baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. So Saul now met Jesus. And he's going around telling everyone about Jesus. In fact, the synagogues that he had letters to go to and persecute the Christians, he's now telling the people there about Jesus. And, and, and the Jews there go after him, and so they have to let him down in a basket at night over the wall, and he takes off, 
And he goes from Damascus over to Arabia, and he is in Arabia for three years. What's he doing in Arabia for three years? Any ideas? He's preparing himself for the ministry that God has for him. Paul wasn't, now his name's changed to Paul. He is an expert in the law. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was from Tarsus, but his parents had sent him to Jerusalem to be tutored by this man Gamaliel. He knew the Old Testament, but he didn't know the Christ of the Old Testament. And I can only assume that he spent three years restudying the Old Testament and saying, oh, that's talking about Jesus. Oh, there's a verse about the Messiah. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, I've never read it like that. That was talking about Jesus all along. Three years. By the way, that's why we are so dogmatic about discipleship. You got to know what you believe. That's why a person who becomes a Christian on Tuesday, we're not going to have them giving their testimony up front the next Sunday. We praise God for that. But you've got to make sure you know what you believe. You've got to make sure you get them grounded. That's what Paul was doing. After three years, he goes back to Damascus. He gets in trouble there. He goes to Jerusalem. You know who he wants to meet in Jerusalem? The first person he wants to meet. He goes back to Jerusalem to meet, anybody know? Peter. He says, I got to know Peter. Man, I got to. He was outspoken the whole time. I heard his sermon on the day of Pentecost. I've got to meet that guy. I want to know what it was like to walk with Jesus. It says he met with Peter, and while he was there, he also met Jesus' half-brother, James, who was the leader in the church in Jerusalem. He gets in trouble in Jerusalem because now the people who he was with, he's telling them that Jesus is the Messiah. He has to escape Jerusalem. There was a, they wanted to kill him. Remember the story, his nephew finds out about it, goes and tells the official. They take him to Syria, and then from Syria, he sails to his hometown of Tarsus. And for the next eight years, Saul is in Cilicia and uh, Syria preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. After eight years, Barnabas goes with him. They go up to Antioch, and it's from Antioch. They're first called Christians. And then Antioch, he goes on his first missionary journey, and Paul takes three missionary journeys uh, during uh, his life. I've got those listed uh, on your sermon notes. I'm not going to go through all of them. You'll see the first journey was a year and a half. You'll see the second journey was two and a half years. The third journey was five years. All of them start in Antioch. Antioch was always his launching point for every journey. I just want to tell you about the second journey that Paul took because it impacts us today. So Saul's here in Antioch getting ready to take his second missionary journey. On his first one, he sailed down to Cyprus, but this time, and then up through into Asia. But this time he takes the land route, and he goes through Derby, he goes to Lystra, he goes up here, this is Asia, and he goes to Troas. And he's in Troas, and he's teaching in Asia, and he has a vision. And it's a man from Macedonia. It's called the Macedonian Vision. This man from Macedonia. Macedonia in that day would be northern Greece today. And this man in the vision says, hey, Paul, Paul, come over and tell us about Jesus Christ. 
come over and preach the gospel. And so Paul took that as from the Lord, and so he sails from Troas over here to a little seaport called Neapolis, and then he goes into the first city, Philippi, and that's important. Why? Because now the gospel is where? Is in Europe. Paul's taking it to Europe. And in Philippi, the first European who comes to know Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior, you know her name? Lydia. A woman was the first European to trust in Jesus Christ. Seller of purple cloth, remember? A businesswoman, well-known in the area. She trusts in Christ, and Paul continues. The church meets in her house, as it did in, in wealthier people's homes, and larger homes. The church met in Lydia's home, and uh, he keeps sharing the gospel. So he goes down to Berea. He shares the gospel there. He goes to Thessalonica. He shared the gospel there. He goes to Athens. And in Athens, there's this big thing called the Parthenon. And, and Paul gets there a little early because he's running from people. <laughs> Paul spends most of his life running for his life. And he's running down, and he goes to Athens, and he gets there before the other team joins him, and he's checking things out. He goes to the Parthenon, and he checks it out, and he said he was burdened by all these gods the people in Athens served. And uh, one in fact, was a statue to an unknown God. And so just after that, Paul goes right from the Parthenon, just a little ways away is a, uh, is a hill where all the philosophers would meet and talk about the newest teaching. And it, was called, it is called Mars Hill. And when you're standing on Mars Hill, you can look right down on the Parthenon. So Paul's up there talking to these philosophers. And here's what he said. Well, you can see it there. I don't have to tell you that. You can see it, right? See the Parthenon? You guys see that? Kind of, sort of? Okay, check it out later. Uh, he's on Mars Hill. He's standing up there, and he is telling these philosophers, hey, man, I walked around your city yesterday. Pretty cool. Parthenon, man, that is very cool. And I see you're religious people. You got statues to all these gods. But there was this one statue. It was to the unknown God. Let me tell you who that God is. And he tells them about Jesus Christ. And he leaves the, uh, the Parthenon, and he goes, and then he goes from Athens, he goes over to Corinth. He stays in Corinth 18 months, establishes a church in Corinth, and then he's back into Asia. That's his second missionary journey, and then he has another one for five years. Again, that's important to us, right? Because gospel's now in Europe. It's in Greece. And then it's over in Italy. And then later on, gets into Britain. And from England, that's our spiritual legacy. Paul's second missionary journey as he takes the gospel into Europe. When Paul took these travels, he was not flying first class, they were difficult. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, if you'll turn there, he describes some of the things he endured on his travels. Just think about this. Verse 25, Paul says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. So a whip with leather strips on the end, and at the end of every leather strip was either a bone or a metal piece of metal ball and a 
a, a professional flogger would dig that thing into a back. Forty times his back was opened wide. Or five times his back was opened wide by these 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Remember that story? They thought he was dead. They left him and then he wasn't dead and got up and was able to go away. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was drift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers of rivers and dangers of robbers, danger of my people, danger of the Gentiles, danger of the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all other things, there was the daily pressure on me of my what? Anxiety for all the churches. Paul says, who is not weak? And I'm not weak. I don't feel that. Who's not made to, to fall and I'm not indignant? Man, when I read that, every time I read that, I feel like a wimp. A first-class wimp. Concerned with all my first-world issues. I mean, I have a bad Saturday when my power washer won't start. We've been given so much, haven't we? We have no idea what persecution is. And Scripture is clear. To whom much is given. God chose. God chose for whatever reason. And I don't know the reason. But God chose for whatever reason to put us in this country at this time where we've not known persecution. And Scripture says, to whom much is given, what? Much is required. How are we going to respond? And seriously, how are we going to respond as we stand before Jesus one day and He says, I gave you all this stuff. I put you in this great nation. I gave you all these resources. Why did you spend it all on yourself? Why were, don't you know, I gave you those things to use. I gave you those things to use for me. I gave you those things to reach the world. Man, we've got a lot to answer for, don't we? The Bible Chapel, we have a lot of opportunities. That's not for a guilt trip, by the way. I'm as convicted by that as anyone in this room. To whom much is given. Much is required. We have tremendous opportunity from this, from this church, the Bible chapel, and you guys in Florida. Tremendous opportunity to fulfill the calling of Acts 1-8. But it's going to take people praying, and it's going to take people serving, and it's going to take people giving, and it's going to take all of us together to do that. The vision we've been talking about over the last... Uh, few weeks is a $6 million vision that we feel God has put before us. Right now, there are about 121 uh, commitments in, and I think it's about 1.3 uh, million, 1.2, uh, $1,213,527. So we have a long way to go. The deadline is June 11, next Sunday. 
And uh, I, I, I'm not going to twist any arms. I'm not going to guilt. I'm, I, I am not going to manipulate. That is not what I'm called to do. I'm just praying that God will work in your heart and prompt you to do what he's calling you to do. Guys are already doing, man, we're already doing some tremendous things with the core, with the core uh, uh, our budget, right? The core things we're, we're doing. It's fantastic. We thank you for that. This is like one little, this is like another gear, right? This is like fifth gear. Cranking it up. Just give something. Doesn't have to be a whole lot. But just get in the game. Get in the game. Uh, 1,263 giving units at the Bible Chapel. That means anyone, any family who's given $200, just $200 or more over a year, that's a giving unit. And we're encouraging you to get in the game. doesn't have to be a lot. Just get in the game. Praying and serving and giving, man, together, think about what we can do. I've told you about opportunities at home. I've told you about opportunities uh, in our community. I've told you about opportunities in our, in our nation. And let me tell you about some opportunities in our world. Over the next three years, we have some tremendous opportunities for educational expansions in Kenya. Mathari slums in Kenya, right outside of Nairobi. We started going over there in 2009. There were 120 kids in the schools at that time. Now there are over 600 kids who get an education and two meals a day because of you guys, people at the Bible, the Bible Chapel, and people, a lot of people from the Bible Chapel, mostly. We want to help them start at 11th and 12th grade. We, together, we can do that. We have the opportunity to reach beyond our walls into the very slums of Kenya. Maybe you can't go there, but together we can impact those kids. We learned from our missionaries in Thailand, the Blumenstocks, that there is a house called the Faith House. There are about 34 girls, ages 8 through 25, at the Faith House. They're from the Burma, Myanmar area, and uh, they, are, they are there uh, being saved from the sex trade, right? Saved from the sex trade. Now, how about you? I have three daughters. So that hits pretty hard. And we have the opportunity to impact those girls, to start a cafe. A lot of ministries in that area will start uh, businesses. There's one right down from the faith house. They have a fishery or ha- a hatching fish. Do you hatch fish? Whatever you do with fish, there's a fish place. <laughs> and uh, they like to start a cafe to train these girls in the food services. Uh, because what you, a girl could be in here for 10 years, Right? And she gets out, desperate people do desperate things. So she's right back in the sex trade. That's in Thailand. Tremendous opportunities there. Dave Donato is going to be uh, going to uh, Honduras. Uh, he's going to continue uh, teaching there, uh, the uh, parenting stuff, the, the marriage material, a great need there. And we have other opportunities as well. So we're asking you to be a part of that. I know a lot of life group leaders, uh, you've been telling your life groups, I hope, you've been telling your life groups about it. And so we need you in the game. We need you in the game. So uh, one of the places that uh, we have supported for many years is Panama. And uh, we have 
been so blessed uh, to be a part uh, of Panama. The opportunities there uh, have allowed us to take kids over, um, have allowed us to um, minister there, but, but, but they've ministered to us much more than, uh, than we've ministered to them. And we have the opportunity over the next three years to do a lot of things over there. But I've got to tell you some sad news. Uh, just last night at uh, 11.30, I got a text, and uh, our partner over there, Mirko Delabosage, passed away suddenly of a heart attack. Um, Mirko is in his mid-50s, and uh, it's just uh, a sad, and we're sad and shocked. Uh, uh, he had such an impact uh, on, on so many people that went to Panama. Uh, Tracy, his wife, wrote, wrote this on a Facebook post uh, early this morning. Uh, last night at around 7.30 p.m., my husband, Mirko, wasn't feeling well and drove to a nearby clinic, and soon after, he suddenly fell over and died of a heart attack. Many people are calling, and I cannot answer all the calls at this time, but appreciate your prayers. These last days, Mirko was at the camp speaking to a group of seniors from uh, high school about making decisions and how to make the best decisions. I am so thankful that this morning at the camp I had the opportunity to hear his last message. He shared about the importance of decision making and how to make the best decisions by loving God and others, depending totally on God and glorifying God in all we do. But he said the most important decision is giving your heart to Christ because that means you know that you are forgiven and have eternal life. He said, when I die, I know I'll be going to heaven because of what Christ has done for me, and I have accepted his gift of forgiveness and eternal life by believing in his Son. Do you know where he will, you will spend eternity? He closed with Philippians chapter 1, verse 2, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I thank God for the wonderful 28 years with Mirko, serving God, and look forward to the day we meet again in heaven. That is the hope we have in Christ, and that is what motivated us to share this great love with others in Panama for these 25 years. Thank you for your prayers and support in this time of trial. So that's pretty shocking. Uh, we'll be communicating to you uh, more about the arrangements over the next few days. But here's a good question, isn't it? Wouldn't you like the last message you gave to be about Jesus instead of the pens or the pirates? Wouldn't you like the last message you gave to be letting people know that if you would die unexpectedly, and that's just a reminder, it can happen to any of us at any time, that you have complete assurance that because of your faith in Jesus Christ, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to wake up and see the Savior. And you can tell others how to do that. See, guys, that's, what, that's why we do what we do. It all boils down to that. 
It all boils down to taking the message of Jesus Christ. It all boils down to sharing Jesus Christ at home, in our community, in our nation, and in our world. We had some great times with Mirko. He, he was a guy who loved life and had a passion for Christ. And the first uh, trip I took with our youth, um, there was a guy over there. He was from Georgia, and he was ripping on the United States, which I hate that. I hate that, period. I certainly hate it when I'm overseas. He was working over there in some ministry. And, and so I, I, didn't, I didn't like the guy at all. And then the guy started picking on our kids. Yeah, look, that kid over there, he needs to stop doing that. That kid over there needs to stop doing that. So, fine. So the last night when we were in Panama, um, we, we worked the kids pretty hard. And uh, we, uh, they, the last night, uh, they get together, and, 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 and uh, Tracy and Mirko provide all kinds of food, and, and the kids have their, they get their phones back, and so they, they got their music blaring, and they're dancing and stuff, and I'm thinking, oh, great, that guy from Georgia, he's going to come and tell me that our kids are out of line. So I was just waiting for him to come. And all of a sudden, I, I, I see these strobe lights going crazy, and I'm thinking, oh, great, now he's really going to come and be all over me. And I looked back, and it was Mierko with his strobe lights, just grinning, shining it on the kids and letting them dance around, and he was loving it. He was a guy who had a passion for kids, a passion to share the message of Christ. Man, we got to have the same passion, don't we? We might not make it till the next Pins game. It might be a saddened and shocked time when they tell of our deaths. But I don't know about you, but I can't imagine a better Facebook posting. The last message was about a certainty in Jesus Christ. 